1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today it is an absolute honor to have as my guest Dan Imhoff, who is an author, independent publisher, and farmer based in California. I've been impressed with Dan's work, I heard. Dan Speak at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition meeting in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, several years ago, and uh, his book uh, on the farm bill, of all things, called Food Fight, uh, was captivating, and now his latest book uh, is, is equally so. It's called CAFO, Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation, The Tragedy of Industrial Animal Factories. Dan, welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me
1: thanks so much for this work. I have to ask you, how did you get started uh, down this path?
0: Well, uh, the KFO project actually came to my desk. There there was another organization that had put a considerable amount of time into it, and they just couldn't get it past a certain critical mass. And um, the, the the project stalled out for a few years, and then Um, The Foundation for Deep Ecology wanted to revive it and and take it to the finish line, and they asked me to pick it up, Um, and that would have been sometime in 2007. Um, And in the meantime, between the time that that first organization was working on the book, so many new things came out to change our database and our understanding of concentrated animal feeding operations like the UN, FAOs, Livestock Long Shadow, and then the Pew Report came out with Putting Meat on the Table, and the Union of Concerned Scientists came out with CAFOs Uncovered, and then maybe like 10 other books got published, and so it really became a very, very different project and it took me a good two and a half years to, to get it to publication.
1: Well, you have produced a work of art, and I recently reviewed this book, and I I said it's probably the most important book that we share with many people, including our young people who eat and may not know where their food comes from. We don't get a chance to see the faces behind our food system. We don't understand the system very well. We're served food, but we don't know where it comes from. And this is a huge um, coffee table book, really, but I I had mentioned I want it in the Oval Office. I want this book to guide our next farm bill. It's terribly important.
0: Yeah, you know, hopefully it's too big to ignore. (laughs) That's great. I mean, basically what the CAFO industry is telling us and industrial ag in general is telling us that they're just too big to fail. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've heard that a lot recently. But they're, you know, they're they're trying to perpetuate a, a few, a number of myths out there. First of all, that these types of factory-produced animal products are cheap, and that they're healthy, and that really they're inevitable. That there are so many of us, we need so many animal products. There's really only one way to do it, which is the industrialization, and and um, the objectification uh... corporatization of agriculture Um, now what they don't tell you is that in three states it's illegal to take a photograph of a CAFO of a concentrated animal feeding operation without permission of the owner and in thirteen states there are so-called veggie libel laws anti-disparagement laws against agricultural enterprises and what this all means is that, you know, finding out the faces, as you say, going behind the scenes of, of, of agricultural production is really not so easy. And, you know, the, the idea behind the large format book is that oftentimes a picture can tell you what, you know, what a 5,000-word essay can't. It can give you just that very sensory, direct information. Now, um, CAFO has about 450 photographs in it. We started with 6,000. And I think many people might might jump to the conclusion that these images came kind of from espionage photographers and vegan-angelical activists and animal welfare activists. And yes, a few of them did, but... By number, most of the images came from Associated Press and Breuters and Corbis and agencies that actually had model releases and permission to go into these operations and take them. People are horrified by, by the, the just you know, the totality of, of the images. They're huge. It's gruesome. It's a, really, it's a really, really brutal look at food production. But the fact is that a lot of these images appeared in newspapers.
1: Mm -hmm. We just needed to have them compiled along with the compelling images, equally compelling essays from some of the leaders in the food and agriculture movement to help describe some of the atrocities that result. Um, For example, let's talk about water and fish kills. I don't think there's anybody, red state, blue state, that doesn't enjoy an afternoon um, by the river's edge uh, fishing, playing in the water, and yet those activities are threatened by these agricultural operations
0: yeah on a you know on a seasonal basis really and and it depends on where you are but but essentially, you know, what you have is an industry that is producing massive amounts of animal protein <laughs> on the one hand but by concentrating so many animals in such small places and also concentrating them geographically on the landscape, um, th- there's, there's just so often far too much waste for the surrounding land to absorb. And um, then you have the fact that um, many of these uh, operations are concentrated in areas which are prone to flooding, heavy rainfall, hurricanes and you know, you, you basically have a fecal flood on the landscape at some point, point during the um, you know, during the production season because, you know, the real challenge of, of this is that animals are eating and they're excreting and they're producing waste all the time and and the land doesn't necessarily need that much nutrient, especially the, the huge amount of nutrients that are coming off of these operations Um, and so the you know the the operations just have to be constantly pumping spraying transporting getting this waste somewhere and and you know the tragedy for all of us is that all too often it ends up in the waterways it ends up in wells um, it ends up volatilizing in the atmosphere and and really becoming a huge pollution hazard
1: when you were compiling this book was there one piece that disturbed you more than others
0: well you know it's it's um probably the fact that we feed poultry manure to cows is is particularly troubling and that just starts to <clears throat> it starts to get at the whole mindset of of the of the industrialization and the corporatization and the factory farming of animals is that you know that, that no longer really is the, the animal's nature important to these to these industries. It's more you know how do they maximize um, the use of cheap industrial resources and um, you know the the, the actual um, welfare and and well-being of the animal is it's not even secondary. I mean, you know, the fact that they, they feed poultry manure to, to cows is, is just extremely troubling.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, my husband and I were looking at this book together last night, and, and my husband comes from an agricultural um, background, and he said, I don't even know how someone who calls themselves a farmer can engage in this kind of activity.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean that's because there are not too many farmers left that are actually engaging in these activities. It's it's really been taken over by huge um, operations. But you know, I mean, we're 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 in a we're in a big bind. Um, I've been thinking back somewhat. I've been trying to think, you know, sometimes about this whole relationship that we humans have with animals, which. It doesn't just go back thousands of years, it goes back millions of years. But you think about the extermination of the buffalo in the United States in the you know late nineteenth century, the 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 intentional destruction of a species, seventy million animals, to thwart a way of life of of the plains indian. and And with that, you know, Sitting Bull made that great statement that. You know, what what is life without the pony and the hunt, the end of living, and the beginning of survival? And in the 1950s, we did a very similar thing with our family farms. We, We basically dismantled a whole regional food production system, and that was a system in which cows and pigs and chickens and sheep and all kinds of animals that had various uses on a small farm... Um, was given over to to a corporatization uh, of the animal industry and and with that you know the farmers who who chose to got to, to survive got big and and I think you know some of them may have become very hardened to you know how animals have to be treated just to survive in a system where there's just so much of every commodity that the margins are so small. You know, the value of, of, of milk is not much different than the value of milk in 1950, even though the costs are so much more. And, and so we've basically turned food production into, into a commodity existence. And, um, you know, some of the more powerful, one of the more powerful pieces in the book, I think, it's the very first piece by Bernard Rowland, it, it's, you know, it ends with a pig farmer in Canada who had, had transformed from you know, a small operation to one of these big CAFOs. He gets on the chair and he, and he listens to a talk and he says, That's it. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to let the hogs back out. And I, you know, I can't even deal with myself and I can't look my son in the eye anymore. And um, you know, it's a powerful moment and And I don't think it's an uncommon moment, either.
1: Mm-hmm. You know when I was looking at these images, I looked at the animals' eyes, and you can just tell that they're suffering, and maybe it's just me, but I don't want I don't want that kind of food entering my body. I don't think it's healthy for anyone. and I think if we look at some of the public health implications of farming this way. Not the least of which is antibiotic resistance, uh, the e. coli outbreaks. Um, I, it's almost like somebody's trying to tell us something. Why aren't we listening?
0: It's too easy to be disconnected. You know I mean, thousands of years ago, if you look back to religious texts and a lot of you know behavior that was codified in in ancient society, a lot of it had to deal with what animals you ate and what animals you didn't eat and how you treated them and um, or, or didn't treat them. And, um, you know, there was a direct acknowledgement of this compact between human and animal. And today we've become so disconnected from um, the way our food is produced and we've really given over that responsibility to other powers, and, and it's really at a, a, a great loss to us, because I agree, the definition of health isn't just chemical, you know, it, it's, it's also spiritual, it's, it's very integrated. Uh, you know, a wise person, Mahatma Gandhi said that one way to you know, measure a society is to see how its people treat its animals. Well, you know, you look at KFO and you look at what we're doing and you realize that we're, we're in a pretty shameful state here. Mm-hmm. And it's on all of us. I mean, you know, we're all eating three times a day and we're electing officials that set rules and allow things to, to go on or not go on. And, and it's really up to all of us to find ways to, to you know, learn about it and, and, you know, make our choices matter.
1: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dan Imhoff. He is an author, independent publisher, and farmer based in California, and he has produced a very important book called CAFO, The Tragedy of Industrial Animal Factories. Dan, I I want to just make one comment, and you have a list of myths in this book, and you touched on them earlier, but one one of the things that we're consistently told is that we have to produce food this way, because we like cheap food.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and we're paying less, I think, than, you know, societies at any point in history have paid for food in terms of, you know, how much of our income. I I believe in the United States it's less than 10%. And um, I I recently read that it's the same in the Netherlands. But the truth is that... um, you know, the only way that you can argue that this food is cheap is through completely bogus accounting. <laughs> um, the, whole, the whole game is rigged so that the, the corporations and, and the big agribusinesses are not paying the real costs of the waste that are being spewed all over the environment, of, of the huge degradation and loss to rural communities um, from from the expansion of, of this type of food production system and to our health. And, you know, the animals are paying the price. People who live in communities where CAFOs are heavily concentrated are paying the price. Um, we're all paying the price of this. And to tell you the truth, if we don't do something about it to begin to really turn it back into a, into a completely uh, healthy system in a healthy direction – the future generations are going to pay the price as well.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when you were speaking in Excelsior Springs, um, the discussion was about what happened after the E. coli outbreak with spinach in California. And you described how farmers were ripping out, you know, all other signs of plant life in order to prevent animals from coming in and contaminating the spinach. And, and you touched on the issues of biodiversity, and, of course, that's also a uh, discussed in this book I wonder if you want to talk about that at all
0: well you know I mean I, I guess a great passion of mine is um, this intersection of where healthy wild systems and um, healthy human settlement and agriculture can interact and they can so they can support one another um and and it is kind of <laughs> the the age-old narrative of of agriculture that basically you know agriculture expands and it's often at the expense of some um, species or some habitat and it's and it's always this dance. but um you know to my mind, a healthy farm is one where perhaps the native flora and fauna they lose some of their territory, but they're not completely wiped out.
1: Um,
0: and what what you have with the CAFO model uh, is is monoculture. You don't find monoculture in nature, and you don't find toxic waste in nature. And you know, so so when you turn when you turn this type of food production into a flush toilet system, which is pretty much what you got, you know. You concentrate as many animals as you possibly can in an area. You're bringing inputs in that are, that, that are also coming from this really unnatural production system. And then, really, all of the byproducts are flushed out into the environment. And then, you know, you flood the markets with this pretty unhealthy food. Um, this is not natural. Um, this is not even beautiful you know, you can't really look at this and say, okay, this is what we have to do to survive, but you can still see the graceful hand of a farmer who really cares. You know, you, you, it's completely absent from this picture because the farmer who is embedded in the place where he's living and he's working, he has that in his synapses, this appreciation of beauty this appreciation of, of differentiality and individuality and diversity. Um, and this, th- there's a sense that this is right. This farming system suits this place, and it can take place over a broad continuum of time way out into the future. This is hopefully, you know, what, and, and there are thousands, thankfully, of family farmers who are doing just that. You know, they're showing the way. This is, we don't have to do it this industrial way. We can be hugely productive. We can make money. We can, we can proudly hold our heads up about the way we are producing food for people mm-hmm. and living our lives. You know, th- th- those are the real heroes to me.
1: Uh, I agree with you. And we are now looking down at, uh, we're breathing down the neck of, of the next Farm Bill, the 2012 Farm Bill, and in 2006, you published another terrific book, Food Fight, A Citizen's Guide to a Food and Farm Bill. And um, I was secretly hoping that maybe you'd do an update for 2012, because I wonder what your thoughts are about the potential of the Farm Bill to change the unhealthy system into more of a a true family, farmer-friendly system.
0: Well, thanks for bringing up that book. Um, I, I am working on an update right now. Um, I think uh, perhaps the deadline has get, gotten a bit of a reprieve with the recent elections. Um, you know, I, I think really as a person, personally, I my faith is in the local, and my faith my faith is in the. The regional and the state level, rather than the federal level, um, knowing what I know about the farm bill, uh, but because the farm bill has such far-reaching influence, so much money, so many of the rules are written from it. you can't help but try to change it and and with you know with full knowledge that um, it's going to take years for any significant substantial change to really Take place, um, but it's a fight that has to be fought last last time you know with the first food fight the, the goal was really let's let's turn on a few million people to the farm bill to the importance of it let's just get them talking just build the literacy, the legislative literacy about how important this particular bill is, this set of bills. is so complicated. No one can understand it fully. Um, But we did that. I mean, millions of people uh, really opened their eyes to the importance of of the farm bill to health, to farming, to the food system, to democracy. Um, And so now, actually, we have to up the ante. It's no longer enough just to um, build literacy. I think we really want to make Some significant points this time, and and get some gains. Um, The challenge is going to be with budget constraints. um, With Big Ag is really digging in their heels. I mean, already this this whole 2012 Farm Bill has been a fight all year long already, and and we're only in 2010. Um, So you know, I I think there's there's time. Uh, It's time for people to get organized, to start working in their local regions and finding champions and developing policies and start to, um, you know, put their hand up and, and let their legislators know that this is important and they actually want a specific outcome from the bill.
1: Is there a section of the Farm Bill that if you had a magic wand, you would work on first?
0: yeah uh you know I, I I think that I would try to make all m- most of the commodity programs um, somehow fit under um, the conservation title. My, my feeling is it's definitely important to offer the the people who produce our food and care for the land and and the the wild habitat. in in which, uh, you know, so much of of rural America uh, is is responsible for stewarding, it's important for them to have a safety net. It's really important to reward people for taking care of things like wild nature, which the marketplace does not value. Um, Having said that, I really believe that there should be no subsidization without social obligation shouldn't just be pumping billions of dollars out in direct payments to people whether they have Manhattan zip codes or they're not even growing anything or not just because you know they have land that is linked to some entitlement programs from the 1930s or the 1950s or the 1970s somehow if we're going to put money into our food and farming system it should promote health healthy markets healthy food, healthy re- regional food distribution systems, and, and mostly healthy agricultural landscapes um, that, you know, we're going to be passing on the soil and, and healthy watersheds and, and water resources to, to future generations.
1: Is there something in one minute that you want to leave our listeners with that I neglected to ask?
0: You know, I would say the one thing I would strongly encourage, if you don't already do it, is find a way to grow some food. Find a way to raise some animals in your, <laughs> in your backyard, in a local school, in a community garden, because it's just a threshold that once you've crossed it, you really it really will change your life and your eating habits and your whole view of agriculture forever. And if you can't do that, Have good relationships with your farmers and and know your food and and really care about um, those three meals a day that sustain you. It's it's a huge um, direct influence on the world that we live in.
1: Oh, Dan, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today. Uh, we've been speaking with Dan Imhoff. He is the, an author, an independent publisher, a farmer based in California, and he has produced many wonderful publications. The two that I'm sitting here with today are Food Fight, A Citizen's Guide to a Food and Farm Bill, and CAFO, The, the Absolute Tragedy of Industrial Animal Factories. And I want to let our listeners know that if you want to learn more about Dan's beautiful work, uh, you can go to www.watershedmedia.org. That's watershedmedia.org. Dan, thank you so much for your time and your work.
0: I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you. Oh, uh, And I just want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, and thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks, Dan.
0: Thank you.